We have diagnoses coming you know, forward on a pretty regular basis these days. It isn't easier. I think I just know me better. I know that it's not a fire. I have to put out right to like sort of lean on that same analogy. I know that I will learn how to manage it. I have confidence in myself. I know how to educate myself. I know how to research. And those are my go-to mechanisms when I'm overwhelmed. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey, friends. Thank you for being here for the 10th episode of Wild Peace for Parents. Have these conversations given you a boost? I'd love to hear from you because that's the goal. If you're loving the show, would you please leave a review? A quick tap on the stars and a positive comment will let us know we're on the right track and make it easier for others to find the show. And if you have a great guest idea or other suggestion, you can connect with me at www.wildpeace.org. Okay, that's the end of the plea part. So let me tell you about my amazing guest today. You know how some people just leave you feeling like there's so much good in the world? Deborah Sweet is one of those. She's a biological, adoptive, and foster mom, raising not one or two or even three kids, but as of now, six kids. And it's complex. Her kids represent a mix of extraordinary needs, social, emotional, behavioral, academic, neurological, and medical. I think I got everything. So the first time I met Deb was at a conference. She was part of a panel discussion to help parents who were grappling with a new diagnosis. And I was riveted because she was so reassuring and real. I mean, most mortals who are raising one child who struggles find it's a challenge because it is. And I just couldn't wrap my head around how she did it in multiples. And she still had it in her to help other parents get their bearings. I wanted to know more about her life. What made her choose this path? Why did she keep adding complexity to her family as a foster parent? What was it about her mindset that made it all seem manageable and joyful? So today you get to find out. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Deb. This is a mom with serious lived experience who is candid and wholehearted as they come. Her perspective will have you look at your new normal in a new light. I'm honored to introduce you to Deborah Sweet. Hi, Deb. I'm so glad you could be here today. Hi, Kendra. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. I'm really excited for people to get to know about you because you have quite a bit of experience, and I think some of your hard-earned wisdom will help so many parents. So I was thinking maybe you could just start by giving us a brief picture of yourself and your and your family. Sure. So I am a wife. I am the mother of six-ish kids. So I have a blended family of biological kids 
adopted kids and foster kids. We have three biological children and two that we adopted from the foster care system and one that is in foster care with us currently. We have a wide range of children in our home and profiles and personalities and lots of love and a little crazy and um, it's all wrapped up in a pretty cool package. (laughs) That's amazing. So have you fostered other children besides the the total number of six kids you have now? We have. We've been a foster family for 12 years. And prior to 12 years ago, when we opened our own doors, we were also, my both my husband and I, in other ways involved in the foster care system. I've been working with foster children since I was about 19 years old. Actually, technically 16. Uh, I worked at a camp where a lot of foster children came and I was charged with them. And my husband is a pediatric nurse practitioner, and he's, for many, many, many years, case-managed the most complex children in the custody of the state and of the Department of Children and Families. So we are coming at it from several different angles. Yeah, you guys bring a lot of experience to the job at home. And when you talk about what's going on at home over the years, what kind of complexity have you managed at home Like what different types of profiles do your collective kids have? Yeah, we've sort of, I shouldn't say we've seen it all. There's a lot out there, but we've sort of dipped our toes or completely nosedived into many different arenas. We have a few kids who are autistic and, you know, if you know one autistic child, you know exactly one autistic child, I like to say. I mean, every child is their own person and it doesn't necessarily define them. We have had children with um, pretty significant medical needs. We continue to have children with significant medical needs, G-tubes and feeding pumps, and just sort of like for everywhere, we've dealt with everything from, you know, sensory needs to social emotional needs to intellectual needs, or I shouldn't say needs, but intellectual disabilities, cognitive impairments, and combinations of all of those things, speech delays and motor delays. And so we basically are a medical foster home. So we take in children who have medical needs. Sometimes that means that they come in with broken bones from physical abuse. Sometimes that means they come in with um, a medical disability or disorder that they were born with or an impairment that they were born with because of maternal drug use or alcohol use in utero. So we've sort of really kind of seen a wide range of kids come through here. And certainly with five that live here forever, we have many needs that are chronic in our home. But I hate defining kids just by their needs. We have so much joy in our home and so much humor and fun kids that are just building their empathy daily. In fact, this is why we started. Both my husband and I were, you know, well-versed in the foster care system from the outside. It's a very different kind of beast, if you will, on the inside when, you know, it is up to us to sort of support, parent, and advocate for the kids that come through our home. That being said, we always knew we wanted to do this. And we decided that we had one of our biological kids in particular really needed some work on building his empathy or his ability to express his empathy. I think it was always in there. He just didn't know how to express it. And so that helped us sort of make the decision a little sooner than we originally thought we might to open our home up to kids in the foster care system. It has been a little experiment that has worked beautifully. It was an easy yes, because we knew it wasn't just to help children we didn't know, but it would also help support a child we love dearly. All of my kids have built 
their empathy, including the kids that have come here and been adopted and, you know, will stay here forever. You know, they still experience other youth coming through that are in the crisis of being in foster care. And with that crisis often comes behavior. And so all of my kids are being exposed to pretty big behaviors on a regular basis, whether it be their own or new behaviors coming into our home. So empathy is something that we work on hands-on. It's not sort of a foreign concept that we think we would like to have more empathetic kids. We, we are building it often moment by moment by learning how to live in the harder moments and get through them, not engage in negative behaviors, control ourselves. And I put myself in that mix because it can be really hard when it's coming at you. So we're pretty much growing. We're aware that we're growing. I think everyone's growing, but we're very aware that we're growing. Wow. What's an example of sort of behind the scenes, like a challenge that you faced that has been really hard recently, I guess, or recently enough, but that has also helped everyone learn? We at the moment actually have what our foster son has been hospitalized for the past four weeks, and he's in a hospital that takes me a couple of hours to get to. And so I'm navigating raising five other children with pretty significant needs themselves. At least three of those children need me to be here full time when they're here. I'm not able to hire babysitters for them. I really can't call in support from friends and families. Their behavioral profile is too complex and things unravel quickly when I'm not home to manage the needs of these kids. So I'm, you know, really stretched between two places right now. I have a child who truly needs my voice and my presence with him in the hospital. And I have five other kiddos who are just, you know, on the other side of the world, it feels like some days sitting in Boston traffic, you know, who also need me to not just do the tough stuff with them, but get them to soccer practice and get food on the table and go grocery shopping and do all the things that we do as parents behind the scenes that we don't always talk out loud about. Just the time management piece of being stretched so thin and making sure that everyone is still fed and sane at the end of every day. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, and how about doing a podcast with me in the middle of it all? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the good stuff. This is, you know, this keeps me going. <laughs> I was just thinking you've managed so much. And over the years, do you think that you've seen your own tolerance for stress change? Because... I imagine at the very beginning when maybe there was one kid in your life or two who had, you know, a few differences, it might have been overwhelming. And now that might seem like nothing. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. I So I do a lot of work outside of what I'm doing in my home, advocating for youth and foster care and just in general for children with disabilities, sitting on advisory boards and councils, and also I'm the foster parent ambassador. And so I talk a lot about what it looks like to be me because I am not a superhero. I absolutely do not have my cape and the dry cleaners or whatever that expression is. I am like all of you. I'm a regular person who has regular stress levels. But there are a couple of things that I've learned along the way that really help me figure out how to keep going in crises. And I and we do tend to have crisis after crisis after crisis. So I feel like I'm putting out fires all day sometimes. One of the things that I've learned is that, believe it or not, even when my five that are here forever feel like enough, and they are, they're enough in all kinds of good ways and often also in just, you know, management ways. <laughs> Putting another child in my home shifts the focus 
So I could be myself sort of hyper-focusing on, you know, my son, one of my children who's in a therapeutic school placement and is falling apart in the placement and I don't know what the next step is and I'm worried about it. And so I'm like really scrambling to try to advocate and read and research and educate myself and find my voice. And, and then, you know, I get a phone call. Can you take this little person who, you know, X, Y, and Z has happened to, we don't know how long it's going to be. It might be two days, might be two years. And you know, and it's not that I jump in with both feet first. I know myself well enough to know what I can and can't handle at this point. And that took time to figure out. But one of the things that I do know is that if that little person comes and I feel like I'm ready for that, that I know that the focus in the house is going to shift to that new person and that little guy's or little girl's needs. And that really changes the dynamic and the structure of support in this house. So we all, because we're a big family, we are all, you know, to the best of our ability and we all have different abilities, but we're helping each other. Sometimes it means we're helping each other grieve when a child leaves or when a child has a new diagnosis that feels overwhelming. Um, and that, you know, that in real time can look like one of my kids knowing that I am out straight and cleaning up the kitchen for me without being asked. I recognize that as that child stepping up and saying, you know what, mom's hurting right now and she's got all she can take and I'm going to do this for her and take this off her plate. And, you know, that seems like a little thing that feels really, really big to me. And it's the same thing when, you know, we add more to our plate. We also know that we're all sort of fixated on this new little person and whatever those needs are and getting to know this person. And it makes everything else, it kind of puts everything else, not on mute, but like turns the volume down a little bit. And, you know, it, it helps us gain perspective as well that, yeah, there are these some, you know, crises or these big events or these big decisions that have to be made for a child, but they're really not on fire, even though it feels that way sometimes. It kind of like tones it down. That's a, so interesting. Yeah, that it's amazing. I can see how adding one person, one personality can just change the dynamic for everyone else. But it's interesting, you said that sometimes when you get a new diagnosis, it's overwhelming. Can you talk about diagnoses for a little bit? The first time we had a diagnosis in our family with one of our kids, I truly felt like a part of me was dying. And I remember coming across this coffee table book on the exact diagnosis that my child had received. And there was a page in the book that talked about grief and the diagnosis. It was actually a book of photography of children who had the same diagnosis. And, you know, there would be little blurbs next to each photo. And this one page spoke about grief and the diagnosis. And that was a huge aha moment for me that I recognize that grief isn't just when someone dies. It's when your life as you know, it changes. And so and that's how I felt. I felt like the life I anticipated for this child, even though he had not changed, he had been born with this diagnosis. We just hadn't identified it yet. I pretty much knew for years before we got the diagnosis, what we were dealing with. When it was final, when somebody looked at me and said, you're not out of your mind thinking these things, you are seeing what we're seeing. We validate what you're seeing. We validate your concerns. And this is what we think is going on. And it, you know, it was right on cue with what I had been thinking and reading about. The recognition felt huge. But then after that, it was like, oh my gosh, like this isn't going away. This is, this is who this guy is. And also, you know, I was grieving what I imagined for him 
during my pregnancy and during, you know, that you go through every component of like, if you're having, you know, a sort of a typical pregnancy, you're thinking about almost every week of that pregnancy, what you're doing to take care of yourself. And then this baby has a birth plan before they're even on the planet. Everything is planned and organized. You have a room set up. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough, you have the ability to plan and that was my experience. And then all of a sudden, it was like the plan just got ripped up and thrown in the middle of the room. And I had to come up with a new plan, except this time, I didn't know how to navigate a new plan because there were no instructions. Yeah. And he had a pretty new diagnosis on the forefront. It was new to the DSM. And it was a little bit of uncharted territory. And so there was a buy-in from like the school system that I wasn't getting. You know, there was a buy-in from family members who didn't understand it. He didn't wear it outwardly, so people couldn't see it. And so that was really challenging. So, you know, that was a couple of decades ago. We have diagnoses coming, you know, forward on a pretty regular basis these days. It isn't easier. I think I just know me better. I know that it's not a fire I have to put out right to like sort of lean on that same analogy. I know that I will learn how to manage it. I have confidence in myself. I know how to educate myself. I know how to research. And those are my go-to mechanisms when I'm overwhelmed is I inform myself to the best of my ability. And so I kind of know my process now. I think with a lot of families that this has become sort of a luxury that I sort of have this like set up. This is how I know how to do it. I think with a lot of families, there aren't maybe, you know, kids coming through like in this revolving door of diagnoses and, so they're, they're getting that one, maybe their first and only one. And it really, like I said earlier, like there's just this hyper focus on it because there's anxiety and fear of the unknown and worry about what this means for your child's future. And it's not that all those things don't exist now for me. It's just that I've gotten a, you know, a child with a diagnosis to, with an alarming diagnosis at the time to adulthood. And it's not necessarily been a smooth ride but we're still here doing it. And also the beauty of all of this is that I've also recognized that, you know, in the foster care world, some diagnoses come because people do things to children. Those are harder to reckon with. But there are others that are just, you know, they're genetic. They're here because this is just the child and this is the way he or she was meant to be. And I don't want to pull any of that away from any of my children. One of my younger sons is autistic, and I can't even imagine him if he were neurotypical. He, he wouldn't be the same child. His autism is as ingrained in him as the rest of his personality, and it doesn't mean he doesn't have struggles. He does, but so do my typical kids, and I try to balance it like that. His struggles may seem bigger, and they can be at times, but they, this is a part of him, and so I feel really strongly that I need to recognize and celebrate that part of him the same way I do his beautiful blue eyes and his great sense of humor. It seems like the expectations that you may have had for that very first child who ended up having a diagnosis might have been more rigid, and each time you've had to flex a little more, you've become more nimble and more able to just see what the strengths are and learn to manage and live with whatever the challenges are. That's so cool. 
it's sort of the best we can do, right? I mean, it's a relief in a sense that, uh, and I have done a tremendous amount of work around this with one of my boys who comes from a really rich history of trauma. Rich maybe seems like the wrong word to use, but I was struggling to find a better one. But there's just been way more than his fair share of traumatic events and circumstances and just generalized trauma, which has really reshaped his brain um, and his ability to relate to others and to sort of put the brakes on behaviors and to have the self-esteem that I feel like he deserves to have. And it, it limits his ability to access his life. And that is really, really hard for me to accept. But, you know, we got to the point where I was struggling to accept it so much because it had been done to him. And because of that, his place in our home had become a source of secondary trauma for the rest of us living with him. And so it was really, really hard to manage my expectations around a kid who would wake up and say to me, when I get older, I'm going to be in jail and mean it. And then that use that as a crutch, like, why should I, you know, do what you're asking? Why should I become a kind hearted, gentle, empathetic human being, you know, in his little developmental way, he was saying kind of like, screw you, I'm just going to end up in jail anyway. So it doesn't matter. And that I struggled with because I wanted the best for him. And he was taking it away from himself at every turn intentionally to sabotage, you know, the idea that he could dream for himself. His dream was, I don't have a dream. I'm going to be in jail. (laughs) And so what I had to reckon with was, how do I accept that for him? How do I accept that that might be the best he can be? And then what I came to was, okay, well, maybe he will go to jail. I just hope he doesn't go to jail because he hurts somebody. So I like sort of tempered my expectation. Like maybe I can help him, you know, be the kind of person that cares enough about people and trusts the relationship enough that he won't ever hurt somebody else's baby or somebody else's family member. And I do believe at this point that he is the kind of person that would not hurt somebody and end up in jail for that reason. And what I started seeing happening was once I, even if I wasn't vocalizing that I had like my own dream for him and this expectation for him that he would be an upstanding citizen he, he knew I was because that's who I am. And I think once I stopped expecting that of him and I just started, the realization was, you know what? I might not be able to control the outcome on this one. Nurture versus nature. I think nature might be winning. And I just have to do the best I can to not give up on him. For me, that looked like I'm going to live in this moment and I'm not going to fret the future. And if he goes to jail, I will visit him. And I just made peace with that. and. I will tell you, it took years, but there was some magic in that because he now has a dream of being a builder and it has been a consistent dream for about two years now. He wants to build houses. He's roped his little brother into his plan. He wants his little brother to be the designer and the architect. Just even having that relationship with his younger brother, it didn't exist a couple of years ago. Now they have a dream together and they're sharing it. And he doesn't talk about jail anymore. And I know that somewhere deep inside that he still worries about that. You know, there's a history there and there's a reason why he's feeling that way. But, you know, we have been able to sort of alter at least his idea of what he's worth enough so that he's dreaming. And that is a huge success. So even though I might still get like the crazy emails from school saying that he did X, Y, and Z and it was really a bad day, (laughs) 
I still can hold on to something. And that's what I'm learning to do is I might not be able to, you know, create the whole crystal ball that I want with the picture of the future that I want for every kid. But you know what, I can hold on to these little nuggets that kind of get me through the harder times. That's beautiful. I love that idea. And it's just such a great example of how a lot of the work is inner work. Mm-hmm. And that acceptance piece, however small, sort of signals to the kids too. They feel that. They feel that energy and they know maybe that you have a little bit higher hopes for them, but still it's a bar that he could that he felt was attainable or worth trying. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that if I rewind back to my earlier parenting days, I think that when those first diagnoses were coming at me, I felt like, okay, there are all these experts that are going to tell me what to do. You know, now we have the diagnosis, I can relax because we have it, we know it's in front of us. And so once I was sort of cycling through the grieving process, and I could start to want to take some action and figure out what the next steps were, I thought, now I have all like I have myself plugged into all these people, these clinicians and these therapists and these doctors that are going to help me teachers, school district. And what I started to realize was, not only did I know my child the best, I knew more about his diagnosis than anybody else. Because you know what? A diagnosis is just like a parameter of symptoms and behaviors. And it doesn't explain the child. So like I said, I have, you know, two with the same, I actually have two sets of two with the same diagnosis. and, And they're all so different from one another. So what I really started to fall back on was that I was the experiential expert always in the room, that I deserved the respect of knowing my child the best. And it helped me gain confidence to find a voice to sort of interrupt the people that were telling me, you know, I remember going into a school team meeting and hearing that the report was canned and that it looked like every other report. And this was from like, you know, a major children's hospital in our area. There was nothing canned about this report. The clinician spent 12 hours evaluating my son. I've never seen a report done so thoroughly or so meticulously. And I was insulted for her. And I was insulted for me because I believed what she wrote to be true. And I, and I think it's really hard to find somebody who gets your child the way you want them to. And I had to really, you know, kind of stand tall and say that that was, you know, absolutely not the case and that, you know, that we needed to like use that report to guide us with next steps for him in school. And that was sort of the first time I ever really felt like I could stand up to somebody because I just knew it was a lie. I knew, you know, it was unfortunately, you know, a, a game I had been entered into unknowingly. And now how many years later, I know how to play the game as well as pretty much anybody. And that's a lot of it too, is like these, a lot of these systems, whether it's school or the hospital or a mental health system, a lot of these systems are set up for kids to fail before they can even get the support they need. And a lot of times our kids are so either weathered or fragile or have failed so many times already that they cannot rebound from another failing on the part of a system. And they don't bounce back just because somebody plugs in support after they fail. So our job as parents is to try to navigate the game and figure out, you know, what's at stake is our child's future. I'm always looking at my kid like he's a really cute first grader, but you know what? What's he going to look like at 30? (laughs) (laughs) And how do I prepare him for being an adult, even though he's only six right now or whatever the case is? Yeah. I'm just thinking about how many 
multiples of, you know, teams and support systems you manage, you know, for each kid. And what kind of a support system do you have for you? Well, not enough one. (laughs) So I have me first. And by that, I mean, I have the things that I try to plug into every day that make me happy. I love iced tea with lemon and extra ice. And that's such a silly thing, but it gets me through every day. It's how I start my day. Somewhere in the middle of my day, I look forward to having another iced tea. And it's like a silly habit that just makes me happy. It's something to look forward to. I like taking walks with my dog and listening to podcasts. So if I can squeeze that into a day, that is going to give me exactly the right self-care. I've seen a therapist from time to time. I can't always get there because of the needs of my kids, which sounds crazy, but I can't leave them. So it really is the reality for me at times. But I've built some really great relationships with one of my son's therapists. And so I can even text them when I'm struggling with him or just in general. And they usually will give me like a sentence or two that kind of pumps me back up and puts me back out there. So, you know, it's just, it's those relationships. And I have friends that serve different purposes in my adult life for me. So I have the friend that makes me laugh and the friend that, you know, holds my heart for me and the friend that I can cry with and the friend that I can tell like, you know, my marital secrets to, and, you know, just I have, and some of those friends I can do multiple things with, but I have the people that I can reach out to. I have a great special education community. One of the things that has come out of doing so much volunteer work and advocacy work is that I, I am meeting so many people who have similar stories, who are parenting, um, you know, higher needs kids and, and really out there on ground zero a lot of times with their kids, especially in the foster care community. And so I have those people who just get it. I, I think that is like the key is finding your crowd that gets it. You know, you're always going to have community friends that have no idea how to walk in your shoes and wouldn't even know the shoes you were walking in most of the time. And I tend to be a private person with a lot of the things I'm going through because I think it's overwhelming to hear. And um, that's not the position I want to put myself in when I have a conversation. I don't want someone to be overwhelmed by my life when I need to, you know, digest and kind of do, you know, have a conversation that isn't going to then overwhelm me about my day (laughs) when I watch the reaction in a friend's face. (laughs) So it's kind of just knowing who to go to for what need. And that that's been a huge support for me. I love that. And maybe tell about your writing too. Oh, thank you. So yes, I'm a creative person by nature. And I've always loved to write. It's funny, because I went to art school and did all the studio arts. And I took a class at art school, and I had to write something in that class that was more open ended. And the teacher wrote a note back to me in college, I'd like to enter this into a literary journal. And, you know, I just need your permission. And I was like, really? Because I'm not a writer. (laughs) And I didn't do it because I was so nervous. That was many years ago. But that was always in the back of my head, like somebody believed I could do that. And I never forgot that, which is why I can call it back up, you know, almost 30 years later. That's great. Yeah, it was. See, those are the little things that people don't realize. Like we are all planting seeds all day long. And I think people don't realize how many seeds they are planting in other people when they compliment them or recognize, you know, a talent that they have. It's something I try to be really cognizant of because I really want 
to plant the seeds that grow, you know, and ideally, you know, build people up and not, you know, break them down. So I, I do think about the way people have done that for me. So, um, yeah, fast forward a million years later and now there's social media and, <laughs> and you can put your stuff out there and, and strangers can read it and it's really accessible. I took a leap of faith about a year and a half ago and started writing a blog. And it is just one of my favorite things to do. I do not give it enough attention because I don't always have the time. It takes me a while to write. I'm not a quick writer, but I just love doing it. And I sometimes read what I write and I feel like I've given birth to something. It really feels like a creation. Like, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I made that sentence come out of me. I don't even remember thinking it. And what it does for me is it takes some of the hardest moments I'm living and it helps me understand them and make sense of them and find a lesson in them if I can. And that's why I write. So I'm writing for me. I'm also writing for my husband. He works a lot out of the home. And it's sort of my little way of... of kind of given him a love note about our family and sort of the mental and uh, just emotional work I have to do to get through the days that I'm living and stay in the game with these kids. He is a huge motivation to me. He inspires me and I am inspired to continue to do this for me, for these kids and for him. That's great. I mean, you are a beautiful writer and it's sort of like how they talk about journaling being therapeutic. You're working through your thoughts, and also you're helping everyone else because sometimes your point of view is something other people hadn't considered and it's, it's really uplifting. That's what I wanted from it. I wanted to build a community of people who were in the shadows and not sort of exposing themselves. And by that, I mean what they're going through on their parenting journey, what they're living through with challenging kids. My writing is particularly centered around kids who have experienced trauma and what it's like to parent them, but I think it's broader than that too. And what I really hoped is we could start connecting people through that blog. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people tag each other in it um, or just say, wow, like you're from your writing to my mouth, like this is what I lived through today. This is what I felt today. And and I find that in other people's writing as well. So I, you know, I'm getting that from other people who are out there doing it. And I thought, why not try to give back in this way? I have all this information in my head. Maybe some of it will be useful to somebody else. It's taken me places I never imagined going. And in a short year and a half, I really do love doing it. I really do. So you and I have talked about resilience a lot. I know it's a word that kind of gets thrown around a lot lately, but Let's talk about what you think resilience looks like for you or for any parent. Well, first of all, I think that resilience is a dirty word when it's used to describe our kids. So I hear that both with kids with disabilities. I hear it a lot with kids who have experienced trauma. Oh, but he's so resilient. And to me, that feels like an adult's way of making peace with something horrific that a child has lived through. Um, and that if we can just say, hey, they're resilient, that we can all sort of wrap it up with a nice red bow and, and move along and not have nightmares about it. I don't think kids are particularly resilient because I don't think they have the capacity to be yet. I think kids go into survival mode when they're experiencing trauma and the survival mode, that fight, flight, or fright mode, you know, that's where they're using the back of their brain, that primitive brain that 
there's no cognition happening in that part of the brain. And, and what happens is if they live there for too long, then they are, you know, they're building new neural pathways and that's sort of defining who they become and how, you know, which direction their behavior goes in when they're um, triggered by something. And so, so for kids, I can't stand that word. And, you know, and also on the other front and the disability front, yeah, I just feel like kids do what kids are supposed to do. They survive. And I think as adults, we're, you know, we're just bigger forms of kids. So we're surviving too. Um, so for me, I think we can use resilience to describe adults, but I don't really know that anyone's ever done being resilient or growing. So if somebody said that I was resilient, I might almost get offended. Like, does that mean that you don't understand what I'm doing to stay doing it, (laughs) to stay here, you know, to keep doing what I'm doing? Does that, I I feel like it almost underestimated. It's just too easy to say it like that. Yeah, that's so interesting because you could think of resilience. It's not that you are or you're not. It's not a one or a zero. Maybe it's just like all these other things. It's sort of a spectrum. And when you start getting into the red zone, you know what you need to do to manage to get yourself back into the more resilient yellow to green zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine like I can be resilient in this month that I've been going back and forth to the hospital. So as almost more like a, an action word, a verb, like there's resilience there because I'm calling on it, but it's deliberate. It's not something that happens to somebody or is how a characteristic or quality somebody has. In my opinion, it's more, you know, I'm calling up my resilience. I have to find a way to get through this. And so that is the mission I'm charging myself with because I can't stop. Because for me, when I'm facing something that feels impossible at the forefront. And the past month or two for me really in many, many ways has felt impossible. Like I, how am I going to get through this day without feeling like I'm dying? How am I going to do this? What I'm calling up is my resilience to get through the day. So how, what does that look like for me? It looks like, all right, well, I'm going to start with a nice tea. I'm going to put a podcast on in the car on the way to the hospital for that two hour trafficy ride. When I get there, I'm going to, you know, get my favorite sandwich on my way up. And then I'm going to look at the clock and I'm going to figure out how many hours I need to be there. And then before the elevator opens, I'm going to have broken down what we're doing, you know, in that window of time. Like, what am I doing with this child in these four hours? Am I going to work on his alphabet? Am I going to work on some of his, you know, relationship struggles? Am I going to do all of that? I sort of break it down in my head. And then I'm looking at, you know, I'm moving forward through my schedule. No, it's not finite. It's not like I have to do it this way or I'm going to lose it. It's like, what am I grabbing onto to get me through this minute, this 10 minutes, this hour, this day? And I've done that my whole life. And that's something I try to teach my kids with anxiety to do is like, you're struggling because you have this dentist appointment in front of you and you're petrified to go to the dentist, but you need to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of that dental appointment, which you'll be on the other side of in an hour and a half. So what are we going to do in an hour and a half? And just sort of like change the focus. Um, That's sort of how I breed resilience in myself. I love that. So before we wrap up, I would love to talk about two more things. One is just, do you have any advice for parents who are just at the beginning or, or in the thick of it and and they don't have six kids, but they might have one and that one is really bringing them to their knees. What's your advice for them? Well, I think we all, most of us, unless we're having multiples or taking a sibling set through foster care, most of us start with one. 
I think you build all of these skills, coping mechanisms, and just the like self-knowledge up, right? So I think forgiveness with yourself. So forgive yourself for the mistakes you're going to make because you will make them. We all do. Most mistakes are not fatal. So, you know, sort of rationalize that with yourself and remember that there's always going to be a new day or ideally there's a new day and nothing's guaranteed. But that's how I like to think, you know, tomorrow's a new day or this afternoon's a new chunk of time. Practicing forgiveness and practicing gratitude for the wonderful things that your child does have that you has not been taken from your child because of a diagnosis. And they're always there if you look for them. I think whatever we are focused on is what we tend to not only obviously explore the most, but what we tend to grow the most. So if we're focused on the fear, then the fear is going to grow. And it's not that that fear isn't there. It's, these are scary moments for us as parents, especially when they're uncharted. But just focusing on the positives, like, okay, my son just got diagnosed with autism, but we're going to the playground today and it's a beautiful sunny day. And, and he does such a great job on these swings. And I don't care what his diagnosis is. He's having a great day today. That's how I kind of get through. Like I can get through today by doing that. I don't know how the heck I'm going to get through tomorrow, but I'm going to get through today by doing it this way and trying to shift where I'm focused. And then I think building your community, So like, you know, new diagnoses come with acronyms we don't recognize. They come with clinicians and folks in the school district. They come with meetings we don't understand how to navigate. So find your people because they are out there. Look for CPACs, Special Education Parent Advisory Councils in your town or city. Look for support groups. If your child is diagnosed in a hospital, the hospital almost always has support groups. Sometimes they're even virtual. I love virtual things. You can like log on at eight o'clock at night, get your hour of training or a support session in and log off and you're doing it in your own home. You don't need a babysitter. There's so much out there like that. But just find your community that speaks the same language and you will find a grand community and then you will whittle it down and find the people that you really connect with. Recognize that your life might change a little bit. Like you might not get to do those backyard barbecues if your kiddo is really struggling behaviorally. And that's part of your grieving process, right? You're going to go through the same cycles of grief that a death would bring on. So have patience with that. And it's not linear. So I can tell you, I went through my grieving process with my first and 10 years later, I opened up and I thought I was done and he was doing okay. And, you know, we were figuring it out. And then 10 years later, I opened up a big bin of all the original paperwork when I was cleaning things out and the books that I bought and I lost it for like weeks. I could not pick myself up off the floor. And I think like, that's it, right? Is grief doesn't just, grief doesn't end, (laughs) Um, we learn to live with new normals. And so I just think patience in the process is absolutely key. Wow. You have so much wisdom. I just could sit here and listen to you for just a few more hours, but, but that's not part of your day chunking. (laughs) 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 And I think we can just leave it at that. That was just so beautiful. I always like I do like to end by asking people about a quote or a mantra that guides them, but I know that you have many on your walls. Maybe just give us your one favorite and we'll end on that. You know, I have so many quotes, but you know what I really want to say as we wrap this up? And I think that the number one lesson I have learned in my personal journey is I have learned that I can live with a broken heart. I think that for me has become my mantra that no matter how badly my heart 
hurts over whether it's just some information that I learned about a child or a diagnosis that is new or my inability to fix something I want to fix for a kid. I've learned that I can live with an open heart. So I keep it open and exposed and raw and I grow it and I give it away and I don't close myself off because I'm worried about getting heartbroken. And that for me, I think defines, you know, how I keep doing what I'm doing. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring philosophy on life. I think that we all are going to go home and try some of these things. Yeah. Thank you, Kendra. I really, I hope, um, you know, I hope it, it helps one person in one way. I think that's all we could ever ask for, but whether it does or doesn't, I just appreciate the time to talk. Well, I appreciate your openness. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well being starts with parent well being. 